Good evening. Um, I was wondering if I was going to get some of the snow before I went back to Uganda. You know, we don't have that there on the equator, and so this is pretty nice. Um, but I'm glad I'm leaving at the end of November so I don't have to keep enduring it. Uh, something nice about that. Um, for those of you who don't know who I am, Kent Nolly used to be the missions pastor here before Dan. And I uh, was here for seven years working on staff and then kicked me out and moved me to Uganda. <laughs> and uh, we started uh, a work there back in 2010. 2015, I went there to make the work bigger uh, with our family. Um, and so our ministry is called Terabith Ministries. And we are a ministry that has a Bible school that is a three-year Bible school. And it takes pastors one week of every month. We have them for an entire week. They stay with us. Uh, on site where the church property is, is where our school is also. And we will go through a book of the Bible. Um, and by three years, they will have gone through every single book of the Bible and tested out of every single book. And uh, we've already graduated one class, and we are a year and a half into the second class. And so there's some really fun things that are happening there with that. And these people, they know how to really start to interpret the scriptures after you spend that much time in them, uh, in the Word of God together. And so it's a big commitment and big sacrifice on their part to, to be away from their family one quarter of their life for three years. That's a huge commitment, right? And so we, we are extremely thankful that there are many, many pastors that would make that sacrifice and their spouses would make that sacrifice to let them go. Uh, we also have a medical clinic. Um, we reach around five to 700 people a month, uh, delivering about 40 babies a month. Or we call it out in the bush because it's out, way out in the village where the, um, the poorest of the poor in Uganda are, um, and, uh, and it's just a really cool touch point. And our mission, our statement, mission statement of the church is, uh, we treat but Jesus heals. And it's just a really fun um, and impactful ministry when you have a medical clinic. As you know, the medical is a huge bridge to the gospel, and we have one of our students that graduated as a chaplain in that school, or from our school in there, just welcoming people into the lobby when they come in. And then we have a self-sustainability farm and a widow's project. And our, our farm hopefully will be able to help sustain the operational cost of our ministry by 2023. So we have like 6,000 chickens that are laying eggs and milling operation and everything else. It's pretty, uh, pretty fun um, just to be able to, to do that part of life there. Um, and see the community in a totally different way. The widows ministry is something I'm really excited about. Right now we're doing about 50 to 60 widows, and hopefully we're going to ramp that up by double um, here at, um, beginning of next year. And we're teaching our churches that are represented in our school how to set up missions departments in their churches. And they're training up committees within their churches, and those committees go out weekly to minister to the widows that we've selected. And they are the worst off, these, these widows, in this area. And so most of them have fatherless children, some four, five, six children. Some of most, a lot of them are grandmothers who are taking care of their grandchildren. And so we give them a big food package, but we also give them discipleship. And what we're seeing is our churches are starting to really expand because they have a lot of kids and then their neighbors are hearing about it. And it's just, I guess what the Lord be taking for what he says, you know, go and reach the least of these and he'll take care of the church. And that's what he's doing. Amen. And so if you want more information on what Terabith Ministries is and what we're doing, I'll be out there uh, hanging out in the foyer after the service. You can at least pick up a flyer, get on our newsletter. If you want to be a, a monthly donor, we definitely need you for that as well for our ministry. And, uh, but we just love to have people praying and knowing what we're doing and just receiving the monthly newsletters that go out and you can keep up with us. 
And so um, tonight we're going to be just tracking along with Pastor Eric in um, Exodus. He asked me to, to take this, uh, this passage here as he's out celebrating his daughter's birthday. I believe that's what it is. And so um, I'm honored to do that. It's an interesting passage of scripture that I like to teach. And so it works out well. And so Exodus chapter 15. And as you're turning there, I'll start praying. Father, I just pray in the name of Jesus tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, um, just, just show up here today. And we know that you will because we're two or three are gathered in, in your name. You're in the midst, and so you're here with us. Um, we want to be able to understand you, your character, your passion, how you want to reach people. We want to know your heartbeat. We want to hear it. We want to feel it. We want to adopt it. We need it. And so tonight we ask that you just... Um, as we go through Exodus chapter 15, that you just, just reveal the truths that are in it, and they are rich truths. And so help us to worship alongside of the Egyptians coming out of the Red Sea, and help us to understand what's going on in this passage of Scripture. So just be with us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, in chapter 14, obviously, is a really important part of the story. It's the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, the children of Israel were held captive not held captive for the total of 400 years, but for a lot of that, they were enslaved uh, by Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and they had a bitter life. It was a tough life. Um, And then the Lord speaks to Moses um, after 40 years of being a shepherd. He left Egypt, and um, he's around 80 years old, and the Lord speaks to him. And he says, you need to go back in and, and tell them that I am sent you. And of course, we know the, the plagues happen, the 10th plague, the Passover happens, and they take off, and the Lord is with them. The Shekinah glory is leading them out. The Egyptians are on their tail, and they stop at the Red Sea, and they're like, what's going to happen now? But the cloud was in the back of them, in the front of them, and it brought them light. They could see light. But the Egyptians, the cloud created darkness. So the Israelites were walking in the light and the Egyptians were in the darkness for an entire day. And then God says, Moses, put your staff out and boom, an east wind comes and the water just sweeps away to where it's on dry ground. It's a massive walls of water on both sides. And it says, our salvation has come. That word salvation is Yeshua. Jesus, it's where we get the name Jesus or Joshua. Our Yahshua, our Joshua has come. And in that Shekinah glory, just takes them across the, the Red Sea. Now they get over there and then they're saved by the split of the water. But when the Egyptians come across, they're judged by the water. It's a big deal. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that that was their baptism. That was their baptism to go through the Red Sea. So it was something that was huge for them. It was their salvation. It was a picture of salvation, their baptism. And it was by the hand of God alone. There's a miracle that was able to happen. And that's what baptism is in general. It's a a miracle of God that we are saved. Only by the hand of God that you can be saved. Amen. So they get on the other side. And what would you do? If you just witnessed all of that, you'd start singing, right? You want to start worshiping. And that's what they do. And that's where we're going to pick up right now. We're going to pick up on a little worship. 
but you just have to read it. We don't sing it. We read it. It's called the Song of Moses, and it takes up the majority of this chapter. And so let me just go ahead and read through the Song of Moses, and then Miriam, his sister, will have a song, but it's not as long. It's only two verses. So let's go ahead and read here. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang the song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will praise him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them and sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemies in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose up against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap. And the depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them, and I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them and sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? Fearful in praises, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will, make, will take hold of them. All of the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over, whom you have purchased. I love that. Whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, that you have made. For your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought back the, the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went in dry land in the midst of the sea. The song of Moses. And then the song of Miriam. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand. And all the women went out after her with timbrels and with the dances. And Miriam answered them. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. That's a song. I don't know how it was vocally phrased. How you sing that one, I don't know. Uh, but in English, it just won't work out, will it? And so um, what you're going to find, like you will in most of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, it's extremely prophetic. And of course, it has to be because it's pointing to Christ. It's the shadow of good things to come. You don't realize, though, sometimes how prophetic it is. 
And even a song like this, you would just normally just, just breeze right by it in your own reading, right? Like, oh, it's just a song, let's get to something else. But this song is what we're going to see as prophetic. The song of Moses. Would it surprise you if you don't know this? It's mentioned two other times in Scripture. One, right before the children of Israel are going into the promised land 40 years after this. In Deuteronomy 32, there's a song of Moses. But then where's the last one? It's in Revelation chapter 15, right before the wrath of God. There's a song of Moses. Once that song is sang, the wrath of God is poured out of, in his bull judgments. And so when you're reading something like this, you can easily breeze past it, but it's part of God's narrative. They're using these songs even uh, to explain a story that's going to happen. And you can go ahead, go, go to Deuteronomy 32, see it there. Go to uh, Revelation chapter 15, look there. We're not going to spend time tonight, but what I'm telling you is, is these are prophetic passages of Scripture. They're worshipful. They're extremely worshipful, and it tells us their heart towards God when he does something huge. And we should all have a song in our heart for God, Right? I just love those last two songs the worship team sang. It kind of brought me back to when I first got saved. And that's what those songs were back in 2000, around that time, 2000 when I got saved. And those songs were there when I got saved. And then it's just like, you know what I mean? When you hear those songs, when the Lord impacts you in your life, then that's what happens tonight with me. It's like, oh, this is what I grew up with kind of thing. And it hasn't even been that long. It's only been 19 years. Um, and so here we are, we have these two songs, Song of Moses and Song of Miriam. And then we start moving into the wilderness. And now it's going to, we're going to embark on this wilderness tour till the end of Deuteronomy. And so the first thing that happens is, we'll go ahead and start in uh, verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. And when they went out into the wilderness of Shur, they went for three days in the wilderness and found no water. When's the last time you have gone three days without water? Think how thirsty they were. They're in the wilderness. It's barren. If you've ever been in that location of the world, it's not a place that you want to hang out. It's not, right? And so it's barren, and they're gone three days, okay? Now, when they came to Mara. They could not drink the waters of Mara, and they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. And the people complained against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And so when you read through this, these passages, you think these people are complainers. But if you haven't had anything to drink for three days, you would be complaining too. Even if you saw the Red Sea part, you would probably say, what's going on here? And that's what's happening. Why is he allowing it for three days? Why is God allowing this to happen? Because he, he is the Shekinah glory. They're following the cloud and the pillar of fire. So God knows what's going on, and he's putting them in a little bit of a bind. God does that sometimes. He puts people in binds to get their attention. And you're, what you're going to see here is he is actually testing them for some reason. And so they're complaining, but then you have this now where Moses has to receive it. And Moses is a very interesting study of meekness. He's the meekest man to walk the earth. Meek means strength under control. For 40 years, he keeps it under control except for the last time, doesn't he? 
And then God will not allow him to go into the promised land because he completely blows it with the whole rock situation in Numbers chapter 20. And so the rock with the water that comes out and he strikes it two times when he was only supposed to speak to it and says, may we bring forth water out of this rock? It's like, when did you ever do anything, Moses? God does everything. Try to take the glory from God, right? I'll leave that passage of scripture for Eric. Um, And so they start complaining to Moses, what shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord and showed him a tree. So this is when it gets really interesting because you're like, what's going on here, right? And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statue and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them. And he said, and said, if you diligently heed my voice, the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, give here to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So they come to this place of water and they're thinking, I haven't had anything to drink for three whole days. And as they are going, they take probably the first sip and they can't drink it because it's so bitter. And some commentaries say maybe even poisonous. Don't know. But it's bitter. And how upset would they be, right? But God has a plan here. He knew it was bitter. And he provided a way for it to be not bitter and to be drinkable. And so this is part of God's plan. You have to know how to interpret this to understand what he's doing. Because it's just not random. They don't put things like this randomly, right? And so God has, I mean, oversight of these people with the Shekinah glory up with them. And so what does this mean? What we're going to see the last time I heard bitter was during the Passover feast. When you make the Passover lamb for the Passover feast and you eat it, it's not probably going to taste good because you have to put bitter herbs in it. Why do you have to put bitter herbs in the Passover meal? It's because of what it represents, it's symbolism. It represents that they had a bitter life and the death of this, this, this lamb is bitter. This is not a good situation. Something has to die for God's wrath to pass over people. Bitter. It's not the only time you're going to see this. In Ruth chapter 1 verse 20, after her two sons are dead, and then she has her two daughter-in-laws, and somebody says, Naomi, she's like, Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Same name without the H, but Mara, not Mara, Mara. Call me that because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. When you see in um, Jeremiah 9.13, it says, Lord said, because we're dealing with, um, we're dealing with Judah here, later on, obviously, because you have forsaken my law, which I set before them and have not obeyed my voice nor walked according to it, but they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the Baals, which their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I feed them, this people with wormwood and give them water of gall to drink. I will scatter them also among the Gentiles whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send a sword after them until I have consumed them. What was the, what was 
God saying to them here, listen to my words. If you don't listen to my words, bitterness will come into your life. And that's what's happening. That's what Jeremiah is prophesying. That's what he's saying. The reason why wormwood is coming to you, the bitterness of the water, wormwood, is because you are not listening and heeding my voice. Where else do we find this passage? Why don't you go ahead and flip back to Revelation chapter 8 with me real fast. Revelation chapter 8. Look at the third trumpet when God is judging the land. Look what he does. Chapter 8, verse 10. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. You see how prophetic this passage is becoming here. You listen to the word of God and your life won't be bitter. Death will pass over you, in a sense. He will take care of you, in principle. You don't listen and heed the words of God. You'll live a thirsty, parched life. Your thirst will never be satisfied. It will never be quenched. That's what this is pointing to when Jesus comes and he starts talking this language, right? Right, so here we have it, Mara, uh, bitterness. So what the first thing they come to out of the land, isn't that interesting? After they sing that worship song, they already start to suffer a little bit, but God suffering, godly suffering, so they can learn the lesson. This is what life is like when you're in bondage to sin like you were in that bitter life back in Egypt, Okay. And then the next passage that we have here is they came to Elam where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. And so they camped there by the waters. All right. It's another one of those passages that you can just completely breeze by, right? I'm telling you, don't breeze by this one because there's a lot to it. What does this mean? They're going to come to these wells these 12 springs, and, and they're going to camp there, and there's 70 palm trees. What's the significance behind this? Um, when, what we're going to do, we're going to spend a little bit of time um, piecing this together because this is starting a narrative that God will continue to use all the way even in through Revelation that you're going to start picking up on symbols that he's introducing 12 springs, 70 palm trees. What do we see when it comes to 12 in the scriptures? You have the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes. You have the 12 disciples. What's water? What are springs of water, living water, right? What are we going to see here? What is God going to start saying to us prophetically through this passage? And what about these palm trees? Well, let's stick with the um, these, um, the imagery of at least Solomon's temple. When Solomon's temple is being built, 
the Holy Spirit came upon David. He made the plans and gathered all the, all the equipment for it to be made. But Solomon had to build the temple. And when Solomon's temple was being built, it was done through the power of the Holy Spirit, just like the tabernacle was when the men had the Holy Spirit come upon them so they could understand that everything about that tabernacle meant something in the gospel. It all meant something. It was pointing to something. Same with the temple. Same with the temple. After when it, uh, David's there, um, they take over Jerusalem, and that's where the Lord is going to be, Mount Zion. And he builds this temple. Now, I have a slide. I'm going to be showing slides because I'm going to be flying through some scripture so you don't have the time, but you can take notes. In Solomon's temple, hopefully you can read this. If you're in the back, you might want to move forward if you can't. Um, Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 7 23 through 25, what we have is this thing they call the sea. It's a massive water pot. It sits right outside of the temple. And this sea is called, the, it's the, the bronze basin, if you will, in the tabernacle. But this is the temple, they call it the sea. And it's massive. And it stood on 12 oxen. Three looking towards the north, three looking towards the west, three to the south, and three to the east. What's this symbolizing? You see this picture right here. This is what it would look like. And it's picturing and symbolizing that they're going to, the children of Israel, his mission was to take the word of God, the saving source of life, water, the word of God in Christ. Jesus also is known as the, word, is the water. And you're going to take it all throughout the world in every single direction. That's what it was picturing. That's how you interpret it. And so you, you start to catch this image, and as the scripture is going through it, this really becomes alive to you once you understand these, these things that are happening. And so what about the 70 palm trees? Why are they there, and where do they come in? Well, then you have to go back into Genesis chapter 10 to begin with the 70. 70 is kind of like seven. It means completion. But when you see 70, you're dealing with the completion of the nations. So even though we have 200 and something nations, the point being is with these nations, 70 means it's an absolute completion. Depending on how many new countries start or whatever, the point being is 70 is dealing with nations in scripture and to start it when you go back is it after the flood no he gets off the boat with his three sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth and then in 10 is the genealogy and there if you count them all you'll have 70 and so theologians commentators call it the table of nations this is where all the nations began you got it chapter 11 what do we have here the Tower of Babel. All those nations were not obeying God. They were supposed to scatter, be fruitful, and multiply and fill the earth. Instead, they went to one location, Babylon. And what did they do? They tried to make a name for themselves. Not for God, but for themselves. They built a tower. And God says, shall we, Elohim, the Trinity, shall we go down there and confuse their language because they're trying to make a name known for themselves. And then what does God do? He separates the people into nations and makes them confused because they have different languages. So what is God doing? He took the 70 and he scattered them. And then in chapter 12, you have Abraham. Abraham, uh, God calls Abraham out to be a blessing to those nations. 
And he is going to be a blessing to those nations because he's going to have an heir named Isaac, which will be prefigure Christ. And Abraham will be the father of the nations, of many nations, and so will his wife Sarai, and many kings will come through her because of Isaac, the promised child. So God is on the move. He is going to reach the nations with his water, with his word, with his son, Jesus Christ. It was from the beginning, church. It was always there. And so when you run into a passage like in Exodus chapter 15, you do have to break it apart and find out what is God doing here? Why is he telling me these things? And so the next thing I wanted to, to, to bring up here is when you start seeing 70, you'll go to Numbers chapter 11. Moses is in the wilderness with these Israelites and they're complaining, I want to go back to Egypt where there's leeks and melons and all the foods that we like. They're so tired of the manna which, by the way, represents the word of God in the body of Christ. How can you be tired of Jesus? They're not satisfied with that. And Moses gets so frustrated and says, God, why did you give me these people? Might as well just go ahead and kill me. They're complaining about food. And then God says to Moses, you bring me your 70 elders. I'm going to help you. Bring them to the tent of meeting. 70 elders come for Moses and it takes the spirit of Moses, the Holy Spirit, and puts them on these people, these 70 elders. And it says those 70 elders go out and start prophesying. And it says that it never happened again like that. Why were they prophesying when the problem was these people wanted food? Because he was giving them God's food, the word of God. They were prophesying the word of God and they got 70 here. What's, what you're going to see, um, this is a preview of Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You are going to go to every nation and proclaim my name. That's what that's saying. And when you have 70 people, it represents the nations. You get it. God's plan is always to reach the nations with his word. And you're like, yeah, Kent, you're just this missionary guy. You're supposed to speak this stuff or whatever. Yes, I'm super passionate about this. This is what the word of God says. It moves me, right? It should move all of us to at least to know this is the heartbeat of God. He has a passion for the nations. And we should be praying for them and try to reach them if at all cost. Um, Solomon's temple. Let's go back to Solomon's temple. How do we see the, the palm trees in Solomon's temple? Um, in 1 Kings 6.29... It says, then he carved on the walls of the temple all around. This is the holy place in the holy. This is, I mean, it's everything in here. This is the middle. This is like the heart of God. Both the inner and the outer sanctuaries were carved figures of cherubim, angels, and palm trees. The next slide in 1 Kings 7. Uh, 49, look how Solomon has set up this temple. The lampstands of pure gold in it. But unlike the tabernacle where there was one lampstand, in Solomon's temple, you would walk through an aisle. There would be five on one side, five on the other. Equaling a total of 70 lights illuminating the palm trees on the wall of the temple. And so if you were to look at a picture of that, what you would see is the menorah, this is one of the candlesticks, the, the lampstands. How many are on there? Seven. 
seven candles, if you can see that. Seven times ten is seventy. There are seventy lights in Solomon's temple. Why do you think there are seventy lights lighting up the inside of Solomon's temple? And there are palm trees all over his inside. If you were to cut Solomon's temple, hopefully you can see this, that comes across. If you were to open it up and see it, look at those palm trees that would have been there, carved probably in gold all the way around because they were supposed to be illuminated. Why were they supposed to be illuminated? Isaiah 56, 7, in the slide, says that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. It's part of the plan of God here, guys. How do you pull out all this stuff out of these, these one little passages of like Elam, right? These things mean something. You have to understand the symbols. You have to understand the numbers. You have to understand that's the way God communicates in Scripture to make it easy for us, Right? In the book of Daniel, the prophecies of the 70 weeks. If you are an end times prophecy guy, right now you're on the what? The 69th week. We're waiting for that 70th week to happen. Even in the book of Daniel, he says the end times, the 70th week, when it comes to to fulfillment, meaning all the nations when they hear, God's going to reach all the nations. Um. In Luke chapter 10, verse 1, how many people does Jesus send out? The same amount of people Moses sent out. 70. Some of you might have an ESV. It says 72. I don't know where they got that from. It just doesn't follow along with the rest of Scripture when you're dealing with 70. But don't let that stuff mess with you. It's just a simple thing. It was probably 70 people that went out because it just kind of fits within the narrative of 70, right? So depending on your translation, if you're in the ESV, it's like, Kent, yours is in the New King James, the King James, it's 70. Um, he appointed 70 others also, and he sent them out two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And they were to go out and do what? Proclaim the name of Jesus, do miracles in his name, and they came back with what kind of report? An amazing report. They went out and prophesied. So when you get into Numbers chapter 11, you're going to see this again when Jesus comes. And why is he doing it? Because he must fulfill the law and the prophets. That's how you know Jesus was an actual prophet. We were looking for the prophet greater than Moses. Deuteronomy tells us we are supposed to look for the prophet greater than Moses. He was going to come into the world. And so when Jesus was doing all these things, he is just proclaiming who he is. The triumphal entry day of the Passover. I'm still on this whole palm tree thing. Can you guys flow with me here? When he comes down on Passover day, you know when Passover, when the lamb had to come into the house on the 10th day of the first month, right? The 10th day of the first month on day 10, it came into the house. And then on the 14th, you sacrificed it. Well, on that 10th day, Jesus comes rolling down on a donkey on the Mount of Olives heading into the temple. And what are people putting on the, on the ground? Palm trees, the, the, the branches of palm trees. Why do you think you're doing that? Because they got the biblical narrative that this is going to be the Savior that comes and saves the world, all the nations. Lastly, 
Revelation 7, 9. Watch what happens here. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude with no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne, before the lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And so when we get into Elam, that's my last slide. When we get into Elam, the story of Elam, it's prophetic. And you have, if you, if you, are going to try to interpret that scripture, you can kind of see now how this whole thing goes, how the whole bitter water turned to sweet water. How does that go? And by the way, I didn't even interpret that. The bitter water turning to sweet water. How did God make it sweet? He provided wood. What do you think that is in the biblical narrative that makes something bitter turn sweet? Is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what turned something bitter into sweet. That's what turned our lives into something sweet because we live this bitter life. He turned it into sweet. We have these palm trees and the nations. And so when Jesus says in the Great Commission, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He was saying that because it was always part of his message that he has a passion to reach people. And we can play a part of it, like Abraham was to play a part of it, to go to be a blessing to the nations. And so we have a mission. We have a calling. We have something to pray for. I'm not saying you have to go move into all the nations. I'm saying just pray for them. Pray for the underground church in China because they're going through it. Pray for the church in Iran. They are going through it. The church in Indonesia. Of course, you can always lift up Uganda too, but we're not going through it as bad as them. But eventually God has this thing figured out, church. He has it all figured out. It's in the palm of his hand. And we don't have to worry because he knows the beginning and the end. He knows how this whole thing is going to work. And we just have to make a decision. Do we, are we excited? Do we have a song? Do we have a reason to be shoutful and joyful because he has saved us? And do we see that we can be used by him to go reach a neighbor, to go treat somebody kindly that needs to be treated kindly, to go pray for somebody, to do something in the kingdom of God to reach people because that's what he's all about. And so tonight, as I conclude here, um, it's, a, it's one of those passages of scripture that um, um, you can easily just read through Hopefully that you were able to kind of look at it and see, well, maybe there's more than meets the eye here. But I just pray that you actually look and say, God, I want this thing that I was just learning here. I want your heart for this. Maybe you don't have it. Maybe it's just feel like, oh, that's for somebody else. I think it's for everybody. I think it's for everybody to understand we're supposed to reach somebody in need to the least of these or whatever. We're supposed to reach somebody and tell somebody about Jesus and to receive another Christian that needs to come and minister to us because they have a call too and maybe we are the recipients of that person. Amen? I mean, that's what we do. And so um, I conclude early. Put it in the record books. Kent and Ollie never... You got that, Dan. You tell the staff that. I got done early here tonight. Um, they always razz me for going late. And so um, why don't we stand on our feet, and as we are going to do communion tonight, we actually think that, man, what was our life like before Christ? Was it, is it as sweet as it is now, or was it bitter? Right? 
And we, the, the, the juice that you take and the bread that you take was all started at Passover with that, with that lamb and the bitter herbs, right? And it was pointing to something that his death was bitter, but it saved us. And it takes us out of a tough life of bondage and slavery and puts us into a life full of him. And so when we take this, we remember what he has done for us on the cross. We commune together. We koinonia together with this communion. That's what that means in the Greek, koinonia, communion. And as a body of Christ, we lift up other churches. We lift up the, the body of Christ in the world, and we think about what he's done for us on the cross. And that's not it. We think about that he's coming back to get us. Amen? Because one day he's going to come back and get us. Amen. So as the worship team leads, I'm going to pray and then you can come up and start partaking of the communion. Father, I pray over tonight that you would just, uh, um, just allow us to understand your scripture. Allow us to be able to sing our song. Allow us to be able to understand that um, you piece all these plans together in scripture for our edification, for our knowledge. And so we can understand your plan. You're a brilliant, brilliant author, Lord. And you make it exciting. And so would you tonight just be able to just speak to each and every one of us as we feast on the, the communion, which represents your body and your blood. And knowing that that's what saves us and that takes us out of darkness and into light. And that you're coming back to get us, Lord. If there's somebody here that doesn't know you, they would come down and receive salvation. If they need prayer or anything, would you just allow them to, um, to come forward and and hear from one of the pastors and just be prayed over and just be ministered to today. That Lord, help us to be engaged in your world. Help us to think about you and how you move. We want to be with you. And so Jesus, thank you tonight. Help us to be safe going home. In your name we pray, amen.